All right. Well, the guys were teasing me this morning. They said, uh, we got the Band of Brothers clip ready, Todd. What else do you want? <laughs> so if you've been around here before, uh, you know a lot of times when we gather as men, we like to talk a lot about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a leader and what the consequences are if leaders don't do what it is they're supposed to do, if men don't act like men. Well, we are going to, this morning, do something a little different because we're kicking off our fall time of study as we dig into the book of Romans. Now, I'm going to take you a little bit into Romans this morning, but we're going to spend um, some time looking at a great illustration of man and why Romans is so stinking important. It's going to be a fun morning, and uh, hopefully it'll get us all excited for what we're going to study for the next eight to ten weeks. Let me pray with you guys, and we'll dive in. Thanks for getting up early, especially thanks for the guys that were uh, already here when I pulled up before six o'clock. There were already guys out there in orange vests and uh, ready to greet you and park you and make sure we served our neighbors well. That is what men do. Guys get in front of other men and they set other men up for success. And so I really, for that team that greeted us and got here and made everything ready, you know, that group of uh, 15 to 30, thank you guys. Way to lead us out. So good stuff. I hope the whole community of faith at Watermark feels that way about all of us in the way we get out in front of them and sacrifice a little sleep and comfort to set them up for success and make sure that um, they're not just not only not offense to our neighbors, but a source of glory to them. So, Lord, thank you for godly men. Thank you for grace that takes men like me and slowly pushes me towards that which is more of a source of a glory to you. Lord, we love you. I pray that we'd get a clear glimpse as we study Romans. Um, as to exactly who you are, so we'd love you more, so we'd respond more fully to um, your kindness and goodness and grace in our life. Use this morning to just uh, give us uh, a passion to study your word, to connect with other guys, to learn. I know there are some men here that haven't cracked open a Bible in a long time. They're intimidated. They wonder if everybody else um, has got six hours of graduate level training in the book of Romans. And they wonder what they're doing here. Father, thank you that uh, if we just bring willing, receptive hearts, it doesn't matter uh, what we know of you. You will work in us. And similarly, it doesn't matter how bright and wise we are in the eyes of the world. If we have not learned the truth of Romans, we are, as we will see this morning, weak and needy and a source of death to ourselves, and even an offense uh, to you. So would you just use this great book and our time together, Father, to help us be what you intend us to be, men of glory, who are on the alert, who stand firm, who are strong, who respond to grace, and let everything they do be done in love. Let us act like those kind of men. For the glory of Christ, the good of our families, and even the good of ourselves. we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans, what a book. Um, you guys do know one of the things I say a lot is that my favorite book is the book that I am currently studying. That is true. I would tell you this, though. If I was forced to give you only one book out of the Bible, I don't even think it'd be a gospel. I think it would be the book of Romans. Uh, many people call it the summit of the Bible. I, I will tell you this. You cannot know your Bible and not know Romans. If you know Romans, you're going to know your Bible. It is the supremely... Uh, uh, it is the most supremely unique book in all the scriptures. It is the most theological of all books. Uh, if you know Romans, you're going to know your theology. If you don't know Romans, you're going to be trying to climb uphill to assimilate it from everywhere else. Paul has made it easy for us. He has taken 16 chapters and he has told you what you need to know about God, about man, about uh, our condition, about the solution to that condition, and about what we are to do if we are reconciled to the Lord. It, this is a book that every time it has been taught, every time it has been studied, it's led to tremendous transformation. Um, Augustine, who's one of the greatest thinkers and theologians in the last 2,000 years, he was converted by his study of Romans. Um, Luther was converted by reading uh, the book of Romans. This is the book that started the Reformation, that got a very corrupt church back on task. Uh, Wesley was converted 
listening uh, to the story of Luther's testimony in his uh, introduction to the book of Romans. So one of the greatest evangelists of the last couple of hundred years came to know Christ through hearing another man coming to Christ through his study of the book of Romans. You can even make a case that our country exists today because of the book of Romans. We are a country that is reformed. We are a country that understands some basic truths. Um, you guys ever heard of the phrase America, American exceptionalism? You ever heard that? That's tossed out a lot by pundits and people who talk about what makes America exceptional. Let me just tell you why America is exceptional and what it means that America is an exceptional group of, of people. And, and you might want to almost start to put that in the past tense, which is uh, why um, we as men who know the truths that made us what we are need to make sure that we are faithful in declaring them to others because there needs to be a reformation that happens once again in a country that was formed by reform-minded men. But listen, this is about the best description of exceptionalism that I had ever uh, really come across. I'll synthesize it right here. America is unique. This is what America makes America exceptional. Most nations, most countries have been formed by some, um, you, you might want to say, I don't know, um, one guy called it accidents of force. And uh, in the ensuing slaughter and war, there, there was a need to form a new land and a new government. America wasn't really like that. You guys know what America was called, right? It was called New Cana to a lot of people. We're going to go to another land, another place, and we're going to form. America was not formed. I'm not talking about United States of America. I'm talking about the Americas. It was formed by a group of men that sat around a table and dreamed about what we should be in light of the character and nature of God and our being reconciled to him. That we do not want to be oppressed under the ideas of men and forced to believe as men will tell us to believe. American exceptionalism, what later became the roots and foundings of our country when we fought to be broken free of a lot of things, um, it was formed on a group of ideas. As one guy said, a group of men that sat around a table. It was a creation of thought more than force initially. We came here and we said, we're going to live this way. Secondly, um, you're not an American because of where you are born. You're an American because you subscribe to a set of values and ideas. And then thirdly, what makes us ultimately exceptional is that the only real and complete fulfillment of that is that um, it empowers the United States of America to do nothing more than to be better than the traditional empires that went before it that were really committed mostly, you know, as one guy said, to looting and conquest. We are not imperialists. We don't go in, we don't dominate and sit there and, and set up our new borders and now we own you. America exceptionalism is basically the idea that all we're going to do is do better than everybody else has done. Why? Because we gather around a group of ideas. We're not made up of Europeans any more than we're made up of Africans. All we are is a group of people who believe certain things and have been reconciled to these ideas. And these ideas don't give us power over others. They give us the power to do good. That, my friends, is the book of Romans. And what's happening in America today, you can trace back to a movement away from the book of Romans. I'm going to tell you, this is a tremendous book to study. You want to engage people during an election cycle? Learn the book of Romans. What makes us exceptional? Believers ought to be exceptional. We are holy people. That means we are set apart. If your marriage isn't set apart, if the way you raise your kids isn't set apart, if the way you stored your resources and gifts that God's given you is not set apart, you are not students of the book of Romans. You are not to be conformed to the world, but you are to be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you might prove in the way that you live that is a good way to live. That is an acceptable way to live. That is a right way to live. That is Romans. And all we get because we have gathered around not just collective ideas of men who speculate. I'm going to tell you, America was not necessarily 100% founded by Christians, but it was founded 100% by men who subscribed to the Judeo-Christian idea. That is a fact. And we have things written into our Constitution. We have things written right into our Declaration, even of Independence, as the United States of America. But you push it back even further to New Cana. And what we said is we want to live in fear of God 
and in right relationship with one another. And that is what makes you an exceptional people. It is the beginning of wisdom. And what happens is we say, you're not here because of your color. You're not here because of your education. You're not here because of your um, impressive human heritage. You are here because you buy into these ideas. And the only privilege that you get for being those men is that you are set apart and you don't loot and conquer like other men do. Sound familiar? That is what makes us ultimately exceptional. It is not that we are smarter than others. In fact, the book of Romans from the very beginning just slaps you up the side of the face and said, you are called out ones. You're men called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're not brilliant. I mean, this is not the men's of society that got up early this morning. And we're inviting others to come join us, you know, in our little, uh, you know, magnus cum laude, can't even pronounce it, much less ever was a part of it myself, group. I mean, just look around, boys, all right? This is not uh, necessarily the group of men that we, you know, you didn't clep out of average stupidity to get in here. In fact, what you really did is you just bowed down to get in here. And you acknowledged who you are not, or you acknowledged that there might be something that you need to know. I'd say it differently. You acknowledged there might be somebody who you need to know, and you're gathering around that idea. You see that? This is no ordinary book. Now, let me just show you a couple of quick things here in the book of Romans. Paul does not introduce himself as a genius. He says, I am a slave. I am a servant. I talked on Sunday about this. If you do anything other than introduce yourself as a servant of God and a steward of the mysteries of God, you are going to be doing others a great injustice. Or all you're going to be doing is abridging a, a, um, uh, some philosophy textbook. You're just the next chapter. You're just the next one to speculate. You're just the next... Uh, professor who's going to be dead in 20 years who has a few ideas. Paul says, I'm not going to give you my ideas. I am a, I'm a courier. I'm not a mystic. Um, I am here to tell you what God has always been about, who God has always been, and I am his servant. I have been called by God as an apostle, one who is sent forth. That's literally what an apostle was. Uh, specifically an apostle, somebody who had literally seen the risen Lord. This is what John says, okay? In 1 John chapter 1, John just basically says this. Hey, listen, the things that we have seen, the things that we have heard, um, things that we have touched and experienced, we proclaim to you. That is exactly what you ought to be. You ought to be an individual who looks at other folks and says, let me just tell you, I'm not smarter than you. I have been called out of darkness by grace into his marvelous light. And God is going to introduce you to truth through the book of Romans and the fellowship of others who don't just know certain ideas, but who know truth, the idea. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And so we have a declaration of dependence on God. We are not brighter and better. We are, by the grace of God, more humble and therefore more glorious. That is who we are. That is the book of Romans. And we've got to learn these truths and go back over these truths and we're gathering around. And Paul's saying, let me tell you some truths that are evident. He goes on. Early on in this book, as you just start, start from the very top, um, just sharing um, with us that I'm going to give you what has been promised by God for a long time. That's verse 2. There's an old statement about the Bible which just basically says this. It says that um, the, old, uh, the New Testament is in the Old concealed and the Old Testament is in the New revealed. What, what, what Paul's going to say right there in verse 2 of Romans, he said, look, I'm going to take to you the gospel of God that, that is set apart from any other idea, the good news of who God is and what he's done and who you are and how I'm coming after you. I'm going to bring it to you. This is the gospel, not that Paul's inventing, John's inventing, Peter's inventing. Jesus is inventing. This is the one that is brought from the days of old. This is what God has always been trying to communicate, promised beforehand. Right there it is in verse 2. It tells you the source of all of Paul's teaching. I'm just going to unfold to you truth. That's why, by the way, when you have Jesus revealed in all of his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration, if you know your Bible, who was with him? 
All right, Peter, James, and John, but who showed up next to him? I hear it whispered right here in front of me. All right, Moses and Elijah. All the law and all the prophets are fulfilled in him. The gospel is not a new idea by a bunch of bright men. New Cana was not a new idea by a bunch of bright men. It was going back to an old idea. We must walk with God in the morning, in the evening. When we think of Puritans, we think of a bunch of chaste, stuffy, too formal people. That is a bad picture of a Mormon, of a Mormon, good night. (laughs) That's a bad idea of a Puritan, all right? I mean, Puritan were men, I'll talk about Mormons in the weeks ahead, we'll give you some Mormons. (laughs) They are mystics, all right? They sat under a tree in upstate New York and, uh, and dreamed dreams and had visions, and they did not bring out from the Old Testament what is in the New. Uh, but I digress, just as Mormons do, all right? Uh, but Puritans, all right, Puritans, uh, were, were, they were men's men who said, we're going to go back to an old idea that it's good to walk with God, to humble ourselves before him, and to love one another even as God has loved us. And we're going to gather around that. And, uh, and they went through great hardship to do it because they didn't care about prosperity or ease. They cared about one thing, and that was freedom to know and worship God, the liberty to be his people. That is exceptional. And when you live that way, it sets you apart. Now look, I'm not going to tear through. I told you I wasn't going to teach Romans this morning, and I'm starting to, all right? It is a book, though, that you can spend all kinds of time, 10 weeks. Let me just tell you something. This is going to be a primer. You are going to read it almost devotionally. I'm taking probably close to 80 to 100 weeks to go through the Gospel of John when I'm done. I don't think I can get through Romans that quick if you were going to really do it justice. A lot of guys, in fact, use Romans to preach the Bible. Why? Because it is the summit of the Bible. You all are right where you need to be if you want to start to know God Let me just give you one major framework for the book of Romans. This is why it's so good. It starts off with the condition of man. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about condemnation, that man is separated from God because of sin, and as a result of that, there's all kinds of chaos, all kinds of trouble. It's true of the Gentile. It's true of the Jew. We are all sinners, and we are all enemies of God. That is condemnation. That is Romans 1, 2, and 3. When you get to 4 and 5 you got some good news showing up, and it's going to go all the way back to your Old Testament. It's going to talk about Abraham. It's going to talk about Adam, and you're going to find out how a loving and holy God can reconcile himself to an unholy and unloving of goodness people. It is called justification. So Romans 1, 2, and 3, condemnation. Romans 4 and 5, you've got justification. How can God justify the wicked and still be just himself? Uh, chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Romans, you might want to call sanctification because it tells you in light of the fact that you have been plucked out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light and you have been justified with God by grace through faith, what should that do now that you are in that exceptional state? Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8 is sanctification. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that we have been saved by grace through faith, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Why do I keep longing to do these godless things though I've been reconciled to God? All that, that process of moving towards Jesus is answered in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Condemnation, justification, sanctification. Then I'm going to hang out with you one morning and and they asked me, he said, Wagner... In 20 minutes, teach Romans 9, 10, and 11. (laughs) All right, good luck, all right? But let me tell you why that is uh, one of two things. It is, you want to understand your Bible? You understand how God who's made a covenant with a specific group of people to reveal himself can move on from them for a while to reveal himself now through a largely other group, uh, another kind of persons and not violate his unconditional promises to the descendants physically of Abraham, the nation of Israel? Romans 9 through 11 is where you go to study that. Or if you've got a perverted view of Scripture where you believe that really there is no unconditional promise from God to Abraham and his people and to Jacob and his sons 
all right, Israel, that's Jacob's name, and his 12 sons, um, then you don't read Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'll tell you some stories to prove it. There are some people that will do everything they can to go because we believe that Israel is the church and the church is just the New Testament expression of Old Testament Israel. We got to act like Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not there. Let me tell you what Romans 9, 10, 11, you got condemnation, one through three, you got justification, four and five, you got sanctification, uh, six, seven, eight. Nine, 10, and 11 is explanation. How can God start a work with this new group of people made up of Jew and Greek, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, male and female, to reveal his glory through an unfolding of a new covenant promise and still do what he said he was going to do in the Old Testament? Romans 9, 10, and 11 will explain it to you. All right, so explanation. Got that? Condemnation, justification, sanctification, explanation and then 12 through 16 is where you want to rush if you don't want to think quite as much but you just want to respond but i will tell you paul's going to spend 11 chapters explaining to you who god is who you are the grace that has invaded your life where you fit in his kingdom redemptive program so that in in chapters 12 through 16 you can say now let's apply ourselves and live exceptionally so 12 through 16 is application You know what gets us in real trouble is if we take 12 through 16 and we stick it right there like a preamble to the Christian life. That is called front-loading the gospel. That is called legalism. And in the scripture, there's always theology that informs thought. And thought is what informs action. All right? You've got the word that informs the walk. You've got the doctrine that informs the doing. You've got the orthodoxy that informs the orthopraxy. You separate those two, you've got real issues. That's one of the issues I've got with the American church. If you can even find a church with a good romantic um, doctrinal statement, you're not going to find a lot of them, though, with a very romantic uh, practical response. Don't you dare stop filling up your head with knowledge there in chapter 11. You make sure you go 12 through 16. So 12 through 16 is application. All right, what do I want to do this morning? We're going to have some fun for the next 20 minutes, 25, yeah, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, with one guy who needed Romans, and I'm going to use him because I do think he relates very well to all of us, okay? This book, I hope you're excited. Let me tell you a guy that we can learn from who needed the truth of the book of Romans. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. His name is Naaman. Now, Naaman in the Hebrew... Uh, it means basically beautiful or put together or well-formed. That's who this brother was, all right? He was uh, a put-together mug. He was, he was the kind of guy that uh, you might look at and, and just be totally impressed by because he was everything that men want to be. He was a decorated warrior. Um, in fact, let me just open my Bible right there with you, and I'll have you write down three things there in Second Kings 5 about the truth of who Naaman was. Right there in verse one, it says, now Naaman was captain of the army of the king of Aram. So you might want to write down position. His position was stud, all right? Uh, He he was uh, second, if you will, um, in command to the king. And we all know, see modern day Egypt, who's really in control? Is it the general and the director of the military or is it the politician or the monarch? Well, that politician or that monarch better make sure that the general agrees with him and wants to execute what the king wants, or he is a puppet king. And so even though Naaman was second in command, he was a pretty powerful dude. So his position, all right, was all that in a bag of chips, all right, to throw out another little phrase right there. It says, he was a great man with his master. He was highly respected, so he was popular. Now, if I told you you could be that, right, that you could be powerful, that you could have a, a position that made other men look at you and go, why can't I be that guy? Uh, I was standing in line last night at Tom Thumb with a guy, and there was a little boy behind me um, who was clearly, you know, coming from a football practice and whatnot, and I looked at him. I said, hey, are you, uh, you know, I looked at his age and guessed get what kind of football he was playing, and uh, daddy goes, yeah, and so I asked him how it was going. He said, well, he was loving it until today. He got hit pretty hard for the first time. Now he likes it, he thinks, you know? 
and uh, and so um, the dad and I started talking, and uh, and he said that his son looked at him and said, "Dad, how come you didn't play professional football?" And I and I looked at the dad and I said, "Well, did you thank him for even asking?" You know, basically, and uh, you know because. Little boys look up at their daddy and say, how come you're not like, you know, Adrian Peterson? How come you're not in the cover of Madden 13? It's not Adrian Peterson this year, but the point is, is a lot of us sometimes think, man, if I could be that guy, I'd have it all together. I'd be extremely popular. Well, let me just tell you something. Uh, about two weeks ago, the Rams were in town. Uh, that's one of the teams sometimes when they come to town that ask me to go out there and do their chapel. I taught them 2 Kings 5. Uh, so completely confused their minds that they got destroyed even by the cowboys in preseason later that night <laughs> but when i but when i sat with those rams right there um you know in that room with those guys i said let me just tell you something i know you guys are a bunch of naming you are beautiful and well formed and they are if you haven't walked walked through and you, most of us haven't an nfl locker room lately when they take their shirts off it's like walking through some greek mausoleum of uh sculpted you know, uh, athletes, they all, well, not all the linemen, they look like they just got done with the buffet somewhere, all right? But, you know, you get to those skill positions, and, uh, and I mean, it's beautiful. That's what Naaman means. It means beautiful, well-formed. NFL means popular. But you keep reading. Because Naaman wasn't just in a great position. He wasn't just popular. He had a problem. Look what it says right here. This is just like all men. Naaman, in his physical and spiritual state, like all men was created by God to be in a position of greatness. We are vice regents of God. We are to be well thought of because the way we love our Eve. But that is not the case anymore, is it? Why? Because we got a problem. Here's our problem. It says, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Um, I won't comment on that, but you can see God uses the unsaved and the saved all throughout history for his purposes. Naaman wasn't the stud. God just gave it to him to go do this thing. Naaman was about to learn who was sovereign. It wasn't him. It says, the man was a valiant warrior. And then you've got some words in italics right there. If you've got the NAS or some others, it says, but he was. That's not in the Hebrew. All right, but uh, it just reads a little bit better, so that's why it's in italics. Here's really what it says. Naaman was a stud, highly respected, a guy that God had used, a leper. Now, what's a leper? Um, leprosy in the Bible is a picture of sin. It is Romans 1, 2, and 3. It tells us basically who we are. Leprosy is a confusing disease. I was first introduced to leprosy when my dad let me watch Papillon, all right? I'm going to date myself right there. Steve McQueen, remember Steve McQueen uh, in that movie Papillon where uh, he was uh, basically a prisoner and an exile, and one of the things that happened is he moved through a leper colony. In, in the movie, it was just a gruesome thing, and I, I saw uh, this and, and McQueen gained favor with those lepers because he took a cigar from a leper and ended up smoking. And the guy goes, how'd you know I didn't have the contagious guy? He's basically, I didn't, but you know, what, what else was I going to do except try and strike up a friendship with guys that could potentially save me? And he identified with them and it led to him uh, you know, moving on in his journey towards freedom. But let me just say this, leprosy, when you see it, is really gruesome. Here's why leprosy is so gruesome. Um, it, it is really a disease. It's a, it's a bacteria that starts inside us, deep inside of us, and it eventually makes its way out to where others can see its effect in our life. Does that sound familiar? A disease, a bacteria, if you will, that is deep inside of us, that eventually shows up as just a little blemish. If you go back and look in Leviticus 13 and 14, leprosy, lepers were unclean. They were set apart because there was a disease that would come upon them that would that would go all through Israel and destroy all of them. Leprosy doesn't really decay the flesh. It, it leads to a numbing of the nerve endings is what it does. You know, when you and I are sweeping a floor, uh, we, we make a thousand little adjustments with that broom in our hand all the time. If you didn't, you would just wear, you know, right there through your little flesh, um, you know, create a wound and what happens is we have lots of little nerve endings and sensors all through our body. And, and that pain 
teaches us we got to do something or we're going to hurt ourselves. Lepers don't have that sense. Um, you got an open wound and it, 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 it starts to get infected and it gets red. It creates pain. That is a gift from God. You better pay attention to that thing. You better clean it out. Otherwise, it's going to create a bigger problem for you. Lepers don't have pain. And so because they don't experience pain to what they're doing, they just kind of continue to live until that little infection spreads all over their body and turns into a very gruesome um, manifestation physically. Let me just let you hear this. This is what some guy wrote as he was meditating on this a while ago. I thought this was genius. The pain of leprosy, at least in certain forms, is not always acute because it killed the nerves in the affected area, but it kept the victim restless, miserable, and frustrated. Let me just say this. I'm going to make a case. The reason we all need Romans is there is something deep inside of us that has killed our our spiritual nerve endings. And, And we may not always experience a ton of pain from it. It's not acute right away. But we are restless and we are miserable and we're frustrated because we don't know what the problem is. It says they saw portions of their bodies become numb, muscles atrophy, waste away, tendons contract, making the hands like claws, and then the ulceration of the fingers and toes and hands and feet resulting in their loss bit by bit until the whole hand or foot is gone. And then this guy wrote this. We must not miss the picture God wants us to see from this emphasis in Scripture. Sin is like this. Because of man's separation from God, because of his spiritually dead condition and the hardness of his soul, he becomes insensitive, callous, restless, and never satisfied. He often does not experience severe pain from his sin and waywardness, only insensitivity to others and insensitivity to his own spiral which turns to restless misery, futility, ever seeking some means of fulfillment, running from one thing to another. I could go on, but Naaman is just like you. Let me just tell you something. And I said this to those rams. I said, boys, you look so good when you tie on those tight, you know, uniforms and that helmet that, you know, you just look like. Uh, You're in a position and you are popular. But let me tell you, I know a lot of boys in this locker room are lepers. And you are miserable. Because there is something inside you that is dead to where real life comes from. That isn't just the Rams locker room. That is right here today. Now what you're going to find out is that uh, Naaman had a little servant girl. Boy, I could teach an entire message on her. And and one of the things I want to do as we come out of here... You know, this little servant girl, she was, one of the, she was part of the, 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 the booty that, that uh, you know, he had won when he went and conquered and did raids into Israel. A little Jewish girl. But she wasn't there, bitter and angry at God. She had some sense of sovereignty. And uh, she said, I'm going to love who God gives me to love, and I'm going to do what God gives me to do. This is a little girl who could be angry at God, stolen, mother and father probably killed, and her murderer is now her Lord, if you will. And all she does is seek God and pray for those around her. And she knew that Naaman, because she lived in his house, all of Aram maybe didn't know the condition, but let me just tell you something. She knew, and that is true of folks in your house. We may not know the leprosy that's in your life, but your wife knows, your little girl knows. All right? You might be numb, if you will, to the deadness in your heart, but let me just tell you something. Your kids aren't numb to it. Your wife ain't numb to it. People inside your house know who they live with, a leper. And if you aren't reconnected by God, with, uh, by Jesus, with, with the Lord, then there is going to be no sanctification. And what there's going to be is a spiral of condemnation that will progress and then in devastation and divorce and sadness. Bank on it. And this little girl knew the condition of that senior in her house. And she said, oh, I wish that my master was in Israel where she would meet the prophet who could tell her about the God who heals dead, numb, dying men. Let me just tell you something. There's a lot of your kids that they don't know how to phrase that, but they are praying that daddy does more than attend Thursday mornings at Watermark. 
but that they would come to know the prophet, Paul, a steward, not a mystic, a courier of truth, a messenger from God, that's a prophet, who can bring healing to lepers. Now, what a lot of guys do is what Naaman did. I'm going to just kind of paraphrase some of that story. Naaman just takes a bunch of gold and silver and uh, possessions, and he thinks he's going to go buy his salvation. That's what a lot of you guys are going to do. That's the natural default thinking of men. If I want something great done for me, I've got to do something great done for somebody else. Well, that might make sense in the way that man communicates with man, and man does business with man. But you don't know God if you think that you can buy from him that which you have lost because of your sin. Gold and silver and works and impressive accumulations of men will never curry you favor with God. See Romans 3. The Bible's going to make it very clear, Romans 6, that the wages of sin is death, and you can't buy your way out of death. The grim reaper isn't looking for cash. There is a curse put on you, and your life is going to continue to spiral, that's Romans 1, into deeper and deeper darkness because of this sin. Unless you run across a prophet who can tell you about a God who is so wonderful you can't even believe it's true. But when you come to know how wonderful and loving he is, you can't wait to get to Romans 12 to say, how then should I live if you would love somebody like me? What would you do if you were a Naaman and I told you that he could heal what you desperately wanted to hide from everybody else? Well, first thing you do, go, what do I got to pay you? And that's what Naaman did. He went down there to Israel First thing he did is he showed up at the king, and the king was a godless king, which is God's using in the story of 2 Kings to tell you about why Israel is spiraling, because as leaders go, nations go. As leaders go, family goes. And this king had no idea. He thought Naaman was there to pick a fight with him, saying, why do you come to me asking me to do what only God can do? Well, the king did not know. He was not a reformed Romanite, if you will, king. There was no Romans then, obviously, but he didn't even know about the power and goodness of God. Instead of seeing this as a chance to raise up the God of Israel, he saw this only in terms of how it affected himself, as opposed to the little servant girl, who though she was in a lowly estate, did not try and barter with Naaman about what would do well for her and maybe get her freedom. She just said, let me take you to God, and when you get your freedom, because I'm underneath you, it will lead to freedom for me. Can I just make a note, guys? I don't care what kind of hell you are creating in your family. Your little girl doesn't want the kind of freedom, even though she might say it sometimes, I wish you'd leave. You know what freedom? She doesn't want you to leave. She just wants you there and not a leper. And she doesn't just want moments of it where your anger isn't ruling over you. She wants you to be transformed from beginning to end where daddy is present and he is not diseased with sin. And the book of Romans, specifically the truth, specifically the true one the book of Romans is about, is the key to your healing. Your wife doesn't want you to go away. She wants you to be made new and brought near in love. That's what she wants. The book of Romans, specifically the truth that the book of Romans is about, can do it. But it's not going to happen if you skim through it, show up late, don't decide to study it until you're here and forget it when you're gone. This is a book that is to be buried on the heart, and this is the truth that is to transform the soul. I want to tell you something. There ain't a woman in the world that wants to leave a man that has been informed by the book of Romans. And so off we go. What happens is Naaman gets run off from the king. What happens is Elijah hears that he's there and says, you send that boy over here. I'll tell him there's a a God who can heal him. So off Naaman goes. He thinks that Elijah is going to come out to him. Elijah doesn't come out to him because God knows that the real disease of Naaman's heart is pride. He thinks that he is significant and sufficient all unto himself. But Elijah doesn't even go out to him. He just sends out his little messenger and tells him what to do. And so Naaman is at first very offended because he's used to being treated differently. It's really funny. You know, this happens everywhere we go. And I even said to those guys, I go, you you all do know that you're used to being treated differently when I was talking to the Rams, don't you? I said, you guys, and they were all kind of quiet. I go, you all do know that you are treated differently than most of us, don't you? And then, you know, Bradford's sitting right there. goes, Sam, you do know that you're treated differently, don't you? And everybody in the room cracked up because they, they had forgotten how differently they're all treated. 
But amongst them, Bradford is treated even more different still. And they all leaned up like, yes, Sam, you know you're treated differently. And listen, a lot of us, we, we, we do expect to be treated differently. And I don't care if you're Sam Bradford, a ram, or just a normal man. The problem is we are treated differently a lot of times, especially when we are uh, guys who are gifted in certain areas or have accomplished certain things in terms of uh, business or we look a certain way. And, and you start to think that you deserve something more. Let me just tell you something. The Lord made all of us, and all of us have fallen short of God's glory, and none of us, I don't care if you're an Olympic decathlete or a decrepit, homeless, broken drug addict, all of us have the same problem. And, uh, and all of us have been offered the same solution. The difference is that broken, decrepit, homeless drug addict is often closer to the end of himself than some of us first round, first pick draft choices are. And there's just a longer way to go to get to Romans 1, 2, and 3 and understand the depth of our sin. Because we're so used to be treated differently and God says, uh-uh, the rich and the poor alike before the Lord are the same need. Naaman's problems is pride. And so what Elijah told Naaman to do real quick and I'll wrap it up with this, as he said, you go and you wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. Now, let me just tell you something. The Jordan is not the prettiest and cleanest of rivers. It's really funny. When I was over there, I was just going to jack around. I had a five-hour energy because you get, you know, we go hard when I'm in Israel. Everybody else goes to bed. I go walk the streets and do different things a few times that I've been there. So I, I took about three or four or five-hour energies. And one day we were by the, <laughs> not all at once, over the period of like 10 days, all right? <laughs> Thank you for helping me clarify that. Um, but I had an empty, I, I saved one little empty bottle and we got in the Jordan. Okay. I filled that sucker up with just some five hour energy, the five hour energy bottle with a, a little bit of Jordan water, you know, and I, I dumped it out here in our little, uh, little pond out in front of us. So you want to get baptized in the Jordan. It's out there right there for you right now. But it was, it was supposed to be, what's really funny is, um, you know, I just threw it back in my bag and one night, all right, uh, I was getting ready to go out and take a walk and do some reading. And I took one of those five-hour energies, and I just unscrewed that sucker, and, like, and I mean, I got it right here, and I was, I was drinking the Jordan, and let me just tell you something, it is not a clean river, all right? So uh, <laughs> my wife cracked up, and I mean, I, about the next three days, I was all this, you know, idiosomatic, thinking I was going to die of some kind of bacteria that I brought back with me from Israel, but I felt nasty for a while. There, there are rivers in uh, Syria, where, Aram, where, where Naaman was from, one of them is called the Golden Stream, like Rocky Mountain water, all right? The Jordan is like the Trinity. I'm not kidding, all right? You might rather swim in the Trinity in certain portions. Um, as it goes, it's a muddy river. And, uh, and so Naaman was like, did I come down here to bathe in that? Here's the point. You bathe in whatever the prophet of God tells you to bathe in. And what the prophet of God tells you to bathe in, in the Bible, is the blood of Jesus Christ. He told Naaman, here's what I want you to do. You go and you, you uh, baptize yourself, if you will. You identify yourself. You, by faith, place yourself in the river that God has appointed for you. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you do before you go swimming? If I'm dressed like this, what am I going to do before I go swimming? I'm going to strip down. In other words, this is what is the beginning of freedom for man. You've got to acknowledge who you are, expose who you are. You've got to state your problem. If we confess our sins. Naaman looked pretty impressive inside his little general's uniform with all his little pins and ribbons, inside his ram uniform, inside his business suit, inside his overworked out Cooper Clinic body. But inside there was a disease and it was death. And when Naaman in front of his little entourage had to go, first he got ticked off. And his servant spoke up and said, hey, had he told you to give you, you didn't have enough riches to be healed and you had to go and do some great feats like Hercules in order to be healed, wouldn't you have done it? Naaman was like, yes, I'd have done it. And he says, then why don't you just acknowledge that you are in need of him and pay what he asked you to pay, which was humility, acknowledgement that you don't have what you need to get where you want to go, and you need help. 
See, that's what generals are not used to doing. That's what men don't like to do. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The greatness of men is that he lived in relationship with God. The death of men is that he separated from God. Romans 1, 2, and 3. The justification of men is that he'll be reconciled again to the God of Israel. And then he'll begin to be transformed as he applies that truth to his life. Naaman had it stripped down, and all of a sudden there was no mystery what was underneath that rich and gay clothing. There was great need. There was death on that man, and everybody saw it. And Naaman exposed himself. I am a sinner. I am judged. I am dying. I am not impressive. It is just a matter of time. And if there ain't something outside of me that can give to me what I cannot accomplish for myself, I am going to continue to bring destruction. If you get too close to me, it will affect you. And he told him, you go baptize yourself seven times. Seven is the number of perfection. You fully and perfectly identify yourself with the provision of God. Now think about what happened with Naaman. He goes down, he baptizes and dips himself once. He comes up, he's still got leprosy, and you know he's getting angry. But God said, no, you completely submit to me second time. Up, You can see him almost storming out of the banks of the Jordan saying, they're mocking me. This is candid camera before candid camera's time. Israel's going to fire this all around, this mighty warrior that destroyed us. He's a leper, mocking him. He was convinced of it. Third time, down. Fourth time, down. Fifth time, down. Sixth time, down. Anger, fear, insecurity. If you will, it's, it's the pilgrim Christian on his way to the, the wicked gate. It is, it is the slew of despair. This is foolish this is crazy. I'm not going to believe in this myth called Christianity. I'm not going to believe in what the prophet had said. I'm a man. Really? You just do what Jesus said. It says the seventh time that he went down, and look what it says. He is seven times. Let's read it together. Um, it says, in verse 14, so he went down, he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And then look what it says. You see, even with your biblical illiteracy that is so rampant in our society, does this sound familiar? It says that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Metaphor, anybody? John 3? Nicodemus, you must be. You've got to be made new, bro. You gotta be born again. And when Naaman by faith subjected himself to what the prophet of God had said, he was made new. In Naaman's case, it was a restored physical beauty, but it was evidence of a restored relationship with God, which was manifest in an external way. What I'm gonna tell you is that is what should happen to us. A renewal with God that leads to an external manifestation of that new relationship. It's like people look at you and go, this is a new husband that I've got. This is a new daddy that I've got. This is a new business partner that I've got. Who are you? And you would say, I've baptized myself in Romans. And I've come to know the Lord, that there is a prophet who is a priest, who is a king, and he died for me. And I know him. And I'm about to tell you something. You can make of me whatever you want to make of me. I'm just telling you, I have dipped myself in his blood, and I am free. And then you become what Paul was, a steward of the mystery of God and a servant of Jesus Christ. And you become what Naaman became, which is a glory to God and his power of transforming work. Let me just tell you something. One day Sam Bradford's not going to be wrapped in a Rams uniform, Okay? One of these days, you're not going to be wrapped in physical glory or business success, and your popularity and your position will wane. And you're going to want to be rightly related to Jesus Christ. And while you get to that place, your, your servant girls and your mistress, and frankly, all in your kingdom, I want you to get there now because they're living underneath your leprosy. And they're praying that you meet the prophet. They're praying you don't just go to church. They're praying you don't just read Romans. They're praying you don't just kind of halfway go through it. They're praying Romans goes through you. And it will lead to exceptional daddyhood, fatherhood, friendship, 
purity living. You want some of that? Come on, baby. Get your butt up. Get in the Word. Read it through. Pray it in. Live it out. Pass it on. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray for these men that they would be exceptional. That because of the truth of Jesus Christ, that your word would go through them and live in them and they would become alive to God and numb to sin as opposed to alive to sin and numb to you. Pray that'd be true of me. I pray we would be a group of men that spur each other on to love and good deeds. We would be humble men who know our state. We would be worshipful men who acknowledge who has transformed us. And we would be obedient men who apply the fullness of our new commander's word to our hearts. We don't want to be like the rest of the world, Father. We would be like men who have been baptized in the Jordan, men who have been baptized into a relationship with the God of Israel who have intimacy with Jesus Christ, and we are born again. We are going to be a group of men that gather around not just an idea, but who gather around the gospel. And it doesn't matter where we come from, whether we are first-round draft picks or whether we are impressive owners of much in terms of worldly um, goods or whether we are broken, divorced addicts. We all need to humble ourselves, meet and hear from the prophet of Israel, and be made new again. Father, I thank you for the depth of brokenness in our life, wherever it is that makes us a little bit closer to where we need to be, that we might fully subscribe ourselves to what you call us to. So Lord, help us to be humble men, who pay attention to your book and who tremble at your word, who study it and beg that you might impart to us life from it. We thank you that you are always going to be more willing to give it than we will be to seek it. That is the kind of God you are. Show yourself to us. Illumine your word. Give us a passion for it. Give us grace and encouragement. Help us then to go share this word with others as people look at us and go, you are exceptional. We say, no. I am in relationship with the exceptional God who loves you. Come and see. For the glory of God, I pray. Amen. All right, man. See you for 10 weeks. Go get them.